Businesses that are constantly trying to retain a competitive edge in a rapidly expanding marketplace have discovered, they've found, that successful messaging is an absolute essential. Now, let me define messaging for you. Messaging is the way to communicate a company or product themes to current or prospective customers or consumers. Since today's tech-driven consumer base has been barded constantly with more media and advertisement than ever before, consultants advise that successful messaging be limited to one to two sentences at the most, carefully crafted to immediately resonate, captivate, and engage the consumer. Because research has revealed that consumers do not remember a marketing message until they've at least heard it approximately seven times, which is why we're all sick of Geico commercials, because they're constant and repetitive. By design, because we only retain a message after seven exposures to that message, consultants stress repetition. Data shows that consistent and constant messaging helps a company build consumer awareness and preference almost faster than anything else. It explains why consultants, once the message has been established by the company, they encourage all the employees to include that message in every form of customer communication, from emails to social media uh, to websites to press releases to sales presentation. Once you've established the message, I mean, run it into the ground. That's kind of the idea. Now, smart messaging is critically important because even if you have an interesting product, if your message fails to immediately capture the attention and connect with a consumer, you can kiss that potential customer goodbye. In 2008, in an attempt to overtake Mickey D's, Burger King hired a cutting-edge advertisement agency, CPMB. What immediately followed was a series of landmark, hilarious commercials featuring a remake of the traditional Burger King kind of affectionately today referred to as the Creepy King. You, you remember these commercials. These famous ads, they went viral. They generated for Burger King significant attention. But by the end of the campaign, Burger King had slipped from number two to number three in the market. One critic observed that though executives undoubtedly thought the quirky campaign would increase sales, it never occurred to anyone that creeping people out probably wouldn't make them hungry for fast food. Analysts attribute the failure of this campaign to the fact the Creepy King failed to provide a consistent message regarding the company and its products. You see, to be successful, messaging must do more than, than get your attention. It must be more than just being memorable. Appropriate, smart, successful messaging has to do two other things, important things. First, it has to express how your product or your company seeks to meet a need. And secondly, it has to explain how your product or your company differentiates or differs from the competition. It's a simple fact that bad messaging will kill even the best, most innovative of products. 1996, as the home computer market was gaining steam in America, Engineers at Panasonic proved to be way ahead, I mean way ahead, of the technology curve. While many were still adapting to the mouse, Panasonic had developed, catch this up, they had developed a touchscreen PC for home use. 
All they needed was a creative, smart marketing campaign in order to get this radical, groundbreaking new computer system into the public. And in order to appeal to your average, non-tech-savvy consumer, Panasonic wanted their messaging to tout this new PC's ease of use, its accessibility. And so, with almost no research, no market testing at all, Panasonic decided to center their entire ad campaign around the beloved, non-threatening, American cartoon character, Woody the Woodpecker. Panasonic. They proudly dubbed their new computer the Woody. While calling this revolutionary touchscreen, and you can't make this up, Touch Woody. <laughs> the catch slogan for the campaign, which boasted a new way to interact with the web, was Touch Woody, the internet pecker. Now, to us, this is tragically obvious why this is a bad idea. But here's the deal. It wasn't until an American staffer informed these Japanese executives of the sexual innuendo behind this phrase, the Woody, that they reluctantly postponed the launch, which was to occur the next day, in order to completely rethink their marketing strategy. And unbelievably, after careful consideration, discussion, the board decided it was too late to rebrand the system and instead simply adjusted the name of their touchscreen feature from Touch Woody to a much more respectable Woody touchscreen. And unexplainably, as part of their marketing, Panasonic still decided to include an internet pecker online support function. Unreal. Think about that. Panasonic had and 1996, touchscreen PC technology. And because of a bad, ill-advised, non-thought-out, or researched marketing campaign, bad messaging, they killed this technology for the next decade. If they had just come up with a better campaign, we might today not even have mouses on our computers, and it might have all been touchscreen. You see, businesses have learned that successful messaging, it needs to be clear. It needs to be concise. It should be repeated, but it needs to be based in reality. It's never bad to be catchy or creative, but in the end, your message must communicate how you're seeking to meet a need that differs from your competition. Now, since the last Sunday of November, we've been traveling verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Acts, in a series titled The Acts of Jesus Through His Church. And though we're now only entering the sixth chapter, a common theme has emerged time and time again, and not only the life of this first century church community, but in their messaging. Let me read a couple passages of scripture. You don't have to flip around in your Bible. You can just listen. But let me read from each of the, the first five chapters. And let me see if you can catch what the messaging of the first century church happens to be. In chapter one, in choosing an apostolic replacement for Judas, we're told 
that beginning from the baptism of John as one of the requirements to the day when he was taken up, one of these, the potential candidates, must become a witness with us of his resurrection. In response to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Peter says plainly in his first sermon, Acts chapter two, he says, him, speaking of Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And then later in the chapter, he says again that David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, Peter says, God has raised up. And then in response to the healing of the lame man, Peter says in his second sermon recorded for us in Acts 3, that you have denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses to you first. God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Following his first arrest, Peter delivers his third sermon to the Sanhedrin, Acts 4. Just going one chapter at a time here. Peter says, let it be known to you all, same people that killed Jesus, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. And then a few verses later, verse 33, Peter says, and with great power, or Luke records that with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. His second trial before the Sanhedrin, just the next chapter uh, over, chapter five, the fourth sermon, Peter claims that the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now we're not quite there yet, but just go with me for a moment. And Acts chapter 10, the fifth sermon of Peter, fifth, one after another. As now Peter is sharing the gospel to the house of Cornelius, the gospel leaving just Jewish communities, now extending into the Gentile world. He delivers the same message. Let me read it for you. Peter says, we are witnesses of all of these things which Jesus did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree, but him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not just to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now, in context to Peter, it's clear that the central message, the messaging, the branding, you could say, of the first century church. The branding, the message is repeated over and over and over and over and over again would be what? Jesus resurrected from the dead. Now, business consultants teach that in order to achieve a successful message, seven key things must always be considered, must be factored in. The same is true with the resurrection. First, a message, a successful message. It must be singular. You see, consultants advise that it's important for a business or for a product for you to get one idea across. Like keep it simple, keep it singular, keep it to the point. Keep the main thing always the main thing. Now in regards to the resurrection of Jesus, one thing is crystal clear, isn't it? 
Not only was this the singular message of these first century church members, but they were constantly repeating it and reiterating the same theme throughout the book of Acts. And not only the book of Acts, but you will find it again and again and again throughout the New Testament. We've mentioned the first five sermons of Peter. He kind of walks off the pages. He pops up again in chapter 15, but he's not a predominant character in the, the latter half of the book of Acts. Next time you're really given some exposure of Peter is his first epistle, his first letter. So we have five sermons where Peter's emphasizing the resurrection, and then you kind of flip over. I wonder what Peter kind of ended up, you know, as still being his message. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And then just a couple chapters later, chapter three, verse 21, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. You kind of think that the resurrection was a big deal for Peter. I mean, at this point. Now, before you attribute this messaging to just being a concoction of Peter, because he's kind of our primary example here, the Apostle Paul would also preach the resurrection of Jesus in the book of Acts, chapter 13, chapter 17, chapter 22, chapter 23, chapter 24, chapter 26. Kind of a big deal. And then he would write extensively on the topic in Romans, 1 Corinthians, Philemon, 2 Timothy, and I think Hebrews as well. Think it's a big idea? An important idea? The resurrection? It was their singular message. Now, as we know, though you might have a singular message and you can repeat it, over and over and over again, and that's important, it's obvious that repeating a singular message is worthless if the message doesn't meet an important need within the heart of an individual or the consumer, which is why beyond a message being singular, consultants say that a message, secondly, must be meaningful. It has to connect with your target audience. Thirdly, a message must be differentiating. It must contrast with your competition. You see, the idea of the resurrection, specifically the resurrection of the dead, it's really not that controversial of a topic. Since death is inevitable, it's one of those weird facts of, of, of humanity that, I mean, statistically, death is just holding steady, man. I mean, every single person dies. It doesn't matter what country you're born in, what color your skin, what religion. It, I mean, death kills us all. I mean, it's good. It's holding steady. You see, the resurrection of the dead, it's not controversial because we all die. And because we all die, what happens next is a principal curiosity of humanity. You're not being genuine if you wouldn't admit that there are times, whether you're an atheist or a theist, a poly, whatever you are, that you don't contemplate at night, I wonder what happens. Like, I wonder what happens when I die. When I breathe my last, I close my eyes, I'm dead. What takes place? You see, every single person 
has this curiosity because we all face death. And as a result, every major religion, to be a major religion, has to address and espouse some beliefs on death, resurrection, and what happens next, or what we would call the afterlife. However, what makes the teachings of Jesus, and Jesus in particular, on this subject so unique is that he intentionally presented a doctrine about the resurrection, about the afterlife, about death, with a built-in litmus test for validating if he was actually right or tragically wrong in his assertions. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 through 23, and in Luke chapter 9, verses 21 through 22, Jesus prophesied, like he made it clear that he would be betrayed into the hands of men, that he would be killed, but the third day, he would be resurrected. He would be raised up. In Mark 8, verse 31, Jesus again taught them that he would suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, that he would be killed, and after three days, rise again. And another very memorable exchange with a woman at a well in John chapter 11, Jesus declared very specifically, right? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Jesus also alludes to his coming resurrection in John 2, verse 19, Mark 14, 58, Matthew 26, 61, Matthew 12, 39, Matthew 16, 4. He says this a lot. As a matter of fact, the resurrection was such a dominant theme during Jesus's earthly ministry that in Matthew chapter 27, verse 63, even his enemies affirmed that while Jesus was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. See, please understand, in making these prophecies, Jesus was not calling his shot. He's not Babe Ruth knocking the dust off the cleats, tapping the plate, and putting the bat out to center field. He's not calling his shot. Jesus is instead validating his position, his teaching, his claims. It's as though Jesus is telling repeatedly his followers, I'm not only telling you that this is what happens when you die, and this is about the afterlife, and this is how uh, you go to heaven, and this is how you go to hell, but to validate my words and to prove that I can be trustworthy in my assertions, watch my actions, because I'll do something that no one's ever done before. You see, Jesus made a promise that those who believe in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus was clear that for his followers, death was not the end of life, but instead the beginning of a glorious new existence. And then, in a bold move to substantiate his position, Jesus presented his own physical resurrection as proof that he could be trusted concerning such affairs. You know, it's been said, the empty tomb as an enduring symbol of the resurrection is the ultimate presentation, representation of Jesus's claim to be God. And I would say that that's true. The, the, the empty tomb signifies Jesus's divinity. But I would also like to add that if Jesus failed to rise from the dead, if the resurrection is nothing more than a myth or a hoax or a lie, the exact opposite would be true, would be evident. If Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead because he said so much and predicated so much upon that event, then he would be nothing more than a lunatic. 
and that's saying it lightly, and a liar. And it's the boldness of the fact that Jesus presented this teaching with a built-in litmus test that really does differentiate this idea of the resurrection or the teaching of Jesus from all other spiritual movements. You see, no other world religion or religious leader has ever dared present the same litmus test to validate their views concerning death and the afterlife. And as a result, how can anyone really be sure that Muhammad or Confucius or Buddha were correct in their beliefs concerning death in the afterlife when they died, stayed dead, and all we're left with is faith in their words. New Testament expert and Dallas Theological Seminary professor, Dr. Daryl Bach, he offers this important insight. He says, Easter, Easter matters because it shows how God vindicated Jesus and his message. The empty tomb not only speaks of life after death, but it also speaks to the fact that what Jesus said about himself and human needs before God mattered. As important as the fact of life after death is, how that afterlife is experienced is more important. Jesus addresses that issue and how to know God and his ministry. Easter is God's yes to that message. Jesus' death in our place is God's program for bearing sin on our behalf and opening a door for people to have fellowship with God. Forgiveness is something God offers us through Jesus' death, not something we earn. This is a Christian distinctive, offering a way to God, not dependent on what we do, but on what God has done through Jesus. So a message. A message needs to be singular. It needs to be meaningful. And it should be differentiating to contrast the competition. But there are two other things we'll point out. Fourth, a message must be important. It must be pertinent to your target audience. And fifthly, a message must be sustainable. So it should be pertinent to your target audience, but it should also, to be successful, resonate with your future audience. Because of its clear implications, the resurrection of Jesus is not only pertinent for every generation, because every generation dies, but it resonates in the deepest of ways because it appeals to a basic, core, fundamental human longing. And that is for hope. Peter, as mentioned in his epistle, chapter one, he goes so far as to say that we have been begotten or born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, in a world where every person dies, poets, scholars, and the like have wrestled with the implications of this reality. Ernest Hemingway wrote, all stories, if continued far enough, end in death. And he is no true storyteller who would keep that from you. And I would agree with him if scripture wasn't a story, but instead the truth. You see, while this perspective is the logical conclusion for a secular humanistic society that has been embracing the Darwinian model of life, the message of the resurrection finds itself pertinent and incredibly relevant, for it challenges this notion. Death is not the end. It's been correctly pointed out 
that the historical resurrection of Jesus is the only proof of his triumph over sin and death. And therefore, it's also the foreshadowing of the resurrection of his followers for us. The resurrection, it's been said, is the basis of Christian hope. It's the miracle of all miracles. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then no one has assurances of their own future resurrection. Billy Graham said it well. He said, the entire plan for the future, the entire plan for your future has its key in the resurrection. Paul would throw down the gauntlet in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he challenges those who were claiming that the resurrection of Jesus really wasn't that essential to the Christian faith, Paul told, told them, he said, for if, if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. See, beyond providing hope that our run in with the reaper is not all that it's actually cracked up to be, the resurrection of Jesus also provides hope that life today can be redeemed from the devastating effects of sin. It gives us hope for life in eternity, but it gives us a hope for life today. I don't know if, if you like that or gravitate to that or if that's an appeal to you, but hope that my life today will matter is significant, draws me to the cross and causes me to stand in front of the tomb with wonderment. You see, in our crazy, messed up, dysfunctional, volatile world, isn't it true that people crave hope for a better tomorrow? And what appears to be a hopeless existence? You know, this idea of hope, that maybe there can be change and hope and a better tomorrow. You know, it's really why Obama's 2008 presidential campaign was really so successful. And this mantra of hope and change, it was clever, it was brilliant because it tapped in beyond the brain. It tapped into something core within all humanity. Yes, I, I need change and I want hope. And if you're promising to give it to me, I'll vote for you because we're desperate for it. All humanity is desperate for it. Please understand, the implications of the resurrection of Jesus are not limited to just the afterlife. You see, a risen Jesus means there exists an active Savior. Hallelujah. Not only does his resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus produce hope for a better tomorrow, but it means that I can experience a life transforming experience and interaction, a connection with him today. If Jesus is alive, then he's here and he's interested in your life. It's amazing. My friend, Josh McClarty, most of you know him. He wrote this exhortation on Facebook this past week that, that gripped me, moved me. I, I, I caught myself saying, amen and amen, Josh. Let's share it with you. He says, as all the Easter mailers are coming out from all the local churches, let's keep in mind that Jesus did not intend for you to be something better than you currently are. Using Jesus as a way to a better life is not only a lie, but a distortion of the gospel. We need Jesus because we are fallen and separated from God. Surrendering your life to Christ guarantees that you're no longer uh, condemned to an eternity separated from God, but that you are given fellowship with him today. 
This Easter, go to a Bible teaching church because you need a savior, not because a mailer has promised you a better life. There's some small grammatical corrections for the sake of the sermon. This is what's amazing to me about the gospel record, especially the gospel record in context to what we've seen already in the book of Acts. It's clear to me that the resurrection of Jesus, it resonated. It was pertinent for these believers in very tangible ways. You know, hanging out with Jesus and spending three years with him had made an undeniable impact on the lives of the apostles. And yet, even after spending three years in his posse, even after being hand-selected to be part of the A team, not the B team, they were the apostles. Even then, in context to all of that, their relationship, they broke bread with him, they traveled with him. He was their BFF in spite of all of that. When Jesus was arrested, Peter denied knowing him three times. Judas kills himself. The rest of them run, go into hiding, abandon their faith, and become skeptics and doubters. I mean, that's the gospel. That's where we're left with the gospels. They spend all this time with Jesus. They hear him teach. They hear him preach. They see miracles. He gets arrested. Boom, we're out. It's unbelievable to me. And yet, something changes. Something changes because in an instant, these disciples are transformed from pitiful cowards, deniers, to being bold proclaimers, even in the face of persecution and certain death. And what changed? What significant event do we find that took them from these cowards that are denying and are running and skeptical and they're doubting to now being bold proclaimers in the face of even the people that killed him? Well, according to the narrative of the gospel, it was the resurrection of Jesus. I hope you catch the lesson there. Friend, you can hang around Jesus and the people who hang around Jesus. You can even affirm him as Lord and recognize him as God, but none of these things will ever be able to, to substitute for an encounter with a resurrected Jesus, a risen Savior. Successful message. It should be singular, meaningful, differentiating. It should meet a real need, in this case of the resurrection, a hope for life and a hope in death. But we should also point out that hope alone really helps no one, does it? Hope for the sake of hope still leaves a man hopeless. This is why a message must also be believable. You see, it must make sense to your target audience, and a message must be credible. Believable and credible. A message must be substantiated by facts. See, the message of Jesus, the message of the resurrection would be ridiculous. Matter of fact, I would go so far as to say the resurrection of Jesus, this messaging would be downright cruel if indeed Jesus was still dead and it was all a hoax. Ravi Zacharias, he said it best. He said, if Jesus is risen, <laughs> nothing else matters. If Jesus is not risen, nothing else matters. 
You see, what made the claim of the resurrection of Jesus so persuasive in the first few chapters of Acts, as we've seen, was the veracity of the claim to the people there was undeniable. You know, everyone in Jerusalem, everyone had witnessed Jesus' death. They'd all seen it with their own eyes. Jesus was crucified on a public road. They saw it. They all knew where Jesus had been buried. It was a matter of public record. It was a public tomb. They were also aware that his body was missing. Three days later, just as he had prophesied, they were also aware, everyone in Jerusalem, that that tomb that Jesus, after dying, had been placed in, had been under Roman guard for the duration of the time, made the notion that the disciples somehow overpowered these guards and stole the, bottle, the body completely ridiculous. And it was because of these indisputable facts, even with the opposition not being able to deny or even produce a body, the apostles' message from the day of Pentecost, the explanation of the healing of the lame man, to standing twice before the Sanhedrin, to being in the house of Cornelius, this message of the resurrection, it resonated. It was, it connected. But why? Because for the people there, it was believable. Matter of fact, it was the best explanation they had gotten for why Jesus' body was not there. See, the evidence for the resurrection, it was overwhelming which is why Peter preaches the resurrection. And 3,000 are saved immediately. And after his second message, again, 5,000 are added to the ranks. And by this point, as we've talked in the book of Acts, we're talking months later, multitudes upon multitudes upon multitudes to the point that the language Luke uses tells us, I can't count them any anymore. And why? Their message was the resurrection. It met a need, but it was believable. And it was credible. William Lane Craig observed that if the tomb weren't empty, it would have been impossible for a movement founded on the belief in the resurrection to have come into existence in the same city where this man had been publicly executed and buried. And beyond this simple proof of the missing body, you have a mountain of eyewitness testimony substantiating the claim. 1 Corinthians 15, you can read it on your own, but Paul references over 500 eyewitnesses who had personally encountered the resurrection, the resurrected Christ. It's been said, the issue with Jesus isn't that he was nowhere to be seen. It's that he was seen alive. Then he was seen pretty dead, but then he was seen alive again. J.P. Moreland says it this way, the apostles were willing to die for something they had seen with their own eyes, had touched with their own hands. They were in a unique position, not to just believe Jesus rose from the dead, but to know with absolute certainty. And when you've got 11 credible people with no ulterior motives, with nothing to gain and a whole lot to lose, who all agree they observed something with their own eyes, now you've got some difficulty explaining that away. Even today, some 2,000 years after the fact, the resurrection of Jesus is believable. It's believable because evidence substantiates it as a credible event of history. Dr. Simon Greenleaf, Harvard 
uh, law professor, he stated that according to the laws of legal evidence used in the courts of law, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history or antiquity. The messaging of the resurrection of Jesus. It's undeniably essential to Christianity. It is our singular core foundational tenet for without it, Christianity would be nothing more than a fairy tale. However, our faith is not based in the unverifiable claims of men who died and never rose, but our faith is based instead in a believable, credible fact of history. But you know, as it is with all messaging, no matter how persuasive or thought out, considered, the human consumer always has a choice. You can see ad after ad after ad that are memorable and rememberable and you're interested in it, but you still have a choice. You see, a consumer always has a choice. Respond to the message or resist it. Sadly, even in our travels through Acts, we have seen in the face of indisputable evidence, men still refuse to accept Jesus Christ, still refuse to accept a resurrected Lord. For some of these men, the resistance is based in their religious pride, the Sanhedrin. But for others, their resistance, well, it's based in a love of sin and a love of self. Friends, hope. Hope is indeed the one thing that we cannot live without. Hope's the one thing you cannot live without. The deepest parts of our souls cry for it. Hope that everything will be okay. Hope that there's someone, somewhere, standing in our corner for us and with us. This Easter morning, you find yourself here at Calvary 316. And we want you to know where you can find hope, where hope is, for hope is here. Hope is in an empty tomb. It's not a false hope that makes untrue promises. It's not a guarantee of an outcome invented by a man. It's not a fantasy. It's not an illusion or a make-believe occurrence. But instead, it is a real, it's a lasting, an eternal hope. Hope that death, your death, is not the final word. Hope that God is still holding your life together even when you think it's falling apart. Hope that he has not turned his face away from you. Hope. Hope for any person, hope for any situation. It provides a hope that God is more intimately involved in your life than you might even be aware. Friend, hope is here. It's found in an empty tomb. Hope that there's a remedy for your sin. Hope that there is a solution for the emptiness that this life gives us.
hope that God deeply, passionately loves you. Make make no mistake about it. It's undeniable. For hope is found in this empty tomb. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, hope is here. And why? For hope rose from the grave. On this Easter Sunday, many, many years ago, hope, his name is Jesus. Amen? So Father, with that word, 